Hollow. Gotham Corner Store? Yes, we seem to be down to our last diet recruit. <laughs> A gentleman is on his way to pick some up. Who calls the corner Just store? Black car. <laughs> no, this black car will be rather difficult to miss. And by the way, the gentleman is usually in quite a rush. Just for the taste of it! Okay, that commercial is so funny for so many reasons. First of all, who calls the corner store when they're running short of Diet Coke? Uh, Also, he's not even asking the corner store to deliver it. He's just saying, be advised, a man will be coming to pick up Diet Coke. I also love the idea that, you know, Batman's in, he's in rather, he tends to be in rather a rush because he's on his way to take a bite out of crime. And his drink of choice (laughs) to aid him in that endeavor is a a cold can of Diet Coke. Uh, Remember, folks, I'm calling from stately Wayne Manor because here at Wayne Manor, we are running low on Diet Coke. Uh, Batman will be picking it up, uh, but he's not Bruce Wayne. Just to be clear, Batman is not Bruce Wayne. Right, you're, you're right. In this, in the world of this ad, uh, Alfred is actually doxing Bruce Wayne. Alfred's doing this constantly. He brought Vicky Vale into the Batcave. You know, he he's showing such little regard for for Batman's secret identity. <laughs> Don't think Alfred should be on the payroll anymore. Well, anyway, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. And pow, bam, comic books aren't just for kids anymore because (laughs) we saw the new Batman movie. And what can I say? A Batman movie, this is some low-hanging fruit for a sort of uh, left-wing culture podcast, isn't it? Uh, This is the real bread and butter stuff. Well, you went and got yourself a drink uh, to enjoy during this recording. And I have to say, I wish I had a cold one in my hand to calm my nerves a little bit because you know i just saw this film and if you haven't seen the batman yet it's the caped crusader's most twisted adventure yet you know a lot of people think the batman is comic book stuff they think he's just for kids they think he's adam west running around with the shark repellent but this movie's here to tell you that this is very serious business this is three hour long business (laughs) this is so serious that the villains don't even get cool costumes anymore yeah what if a batman movie but dark uh, anyway, the the movie is the Batman, by the way. Yeah, not just not just any Batman, the Batman. I was actually looking forward to seeing this movie because I'm a longtime observer of the Bat franchise. Uh, I'm always going to have a little bit of fun at a Batman movie. I've been following it for so long that I think there will always be part of me that's kind of like, I wonder what the Penguin looks like in this one. <laughs> what are they? What are they going to do with Alfred in this one? Uh, that is a real unironic part of me that I think will probably always be there. Uh, nevertheless, I have to say I did not enjoy this movie. And I think this this may be the least I've ever enjoyed a Batman movie. I know that I know these are strong words. Is that but... is that the case? So I don't feel that way, actually. Uh, I think politically, this movie is incredibly silly. It is incredibly emblematic of sort of uh, the dumbest tendencies to come out of the Trump era. It ends in these like <laughs> in, in this absolutely absurd flourish of just like liberal id, Ugh. which is it's especially funny because it was supposed to come out in June 2021 and it is now March 2022. A message that was already cliche and, and trite 
in, you know, mid-2021 is now just so totally out of sync with the times. But having said all that... and uh, you, Hang on, I, I disagree. I mean, this movie was largely filmed before the January 6th Capitol riot. And had I not known that, I would have thought this is Hollywood's response to that. This is the post-January 6th Batman movie. I think regardless of when it was written and filmed, it's very hard to not uh, see it in those terms. We'll get into that. But before we get into the plot of the film and the politics of it, I just want to say that I actually had a pretty good time watching it. I went to see it in IMAX. You know, I didn't expect a lot from it, right? It's a dark, you know, it's a dark Batman movie, but I think (laughs) Pattinson's good. I think he's fun. I liked Zoe Kravitz. You know, Paul Dano did the Jared Leto thing of talking up, you know, how twisted, you know, he got to get into character for this. And I do think it's a little bit silly that, you know, every time one of these movies comes out, at least one of the actors in them does like a little media, little mini media tour about how they're going to be fucked up for the rest of their life after collecting this huge paycheck for this uh, blockbuster movie. Well, you know, there's a lot of precedent for it. I mean, Jack Nicholson got deep into the role of a party man, wacky joker by having a threesome in his bed every night before filming and then rolling in hungover seconds before the camera rolled. <laughs> that was deep method. <laughs> well, you know, I'll poke fun at Dano, but, uh, you know, I think I think he's pretty fun uh, in this movie, all things considered as well. I think perhaps our different experiences of it uh, maybe just have to do with our expectations. I mean, my expectations were not high going in. I just wanted to be entertained for a couple hours. And, you know, mostly, uh, mostly I was. I'll just say that I coveted the experience you had. I would have loved to have been entertained by this movie because, look, uh, complaining about the politics of Batman movies, it's low-hanging fruit. (laughs) We get it. Nobody's interested. Batman movies have bad politics. We all understand this. I did not go in expecting that this would somehow be the communist Batman movie where Bruce Wayne redistributes his income voluntarily. We get it. It's a billionaire beating up poor people. But typically, the Batman films have delivered for me on the level of spectacle. The Christopher Nolan movies, even. The Dark Knight Rises is kind of like if Joel Schumacher thought he was Stanley Kubrick. And to me, it delivered on the level of spectacle. This one, I I just found it incredibly boring. I don't know. Just very slow, very solemn, very unpleasant. It really leans into the detective angle of Batman in, I thought, a not particularly interesting way. I mean, this is, you know, as far as mystery plots go, uh, this is one that, you know, I I think I kind of saw where it was going within the first few seconds. It's like, oh, you're telling me everything. You're telling me it's all connected and everything's corrupt. I mean, come on. I think the action when it comes is, you know, not particularly well filmed, not particularly exciting. I thought there are things to like and admire about it. The cast is uniformly, I think, pretty good, especially Colin Farrell as the Penguin, although I do kind of wish they could cast an actual fat guy in some of these roles now instead of just taking handsome guys and larding them up with makeup. I don't know. That's a note that I would have for Hollywood. But yeah, my, my prescription for this series would be, let's be a little bit fun. If these are the ideas you're going to deliver to me, then deliver them in a less ponderous package, please. And and a shorter one. Let's get it back to two hours. Bruce Wayne, you really could be doing more for this city. Your family has a history of philanthropy, but as far as I can tell, you're not doing anything. The Riddler's latest. It's all about the Waynes. Who are you under there? Oh, you're really not as smart as I thought you were. Bruce Wayne. 
I don't want to exaggerate the differences between us here because I'm definitely not go- like going to the mats for for the Batman. <laughs> I think I just ex- enjoyed the experience of going to see a movie on a Friday night more than you did. Uh, well, I mean, that is fun. What can I say? I think seeing it on a Sunday afternoon was probably my problem. So I will describe the plot of the film. Uh, you got Bruce Wayne. And 20 years ago, his parents were killed. And ever since then, he has been in the cave under his house. And he has been training body and he has been training mind. He is played by Robert Pattinson, who delivers the same facial expression from beginning to end. This is how upset he is about what has happened to his life. Yeah, in this in this movie, Batman is like a brooding, like emo rich guy who uh, listens to Nirvana. Uh, he also writes in a diary like Travis Bickle. And that that's how you know he's a little bit twisted. That's how you know that the line between hero and villain might become a little bit porous. Occasionally, he is visited upon by his manservant, Alfred, who still flies the flag of the Wayne family. His father, Thomas Wayne, was a sainted billionaire philanthropist and aspiring political figure in the city before he was brutally slain 20 years ago. Corruption and chaos has engulfed Gotham City. Uh, Your old friends are back in new guises. The Penguin is the oafish assistant to local crime baron Carmine Falcone, played by John Turturro. Selena Kyle, aka Catwoman, is in the orbit of this crime ring. As in almost all depictions of the Catwoman, she is depicted as wavering between darkness and light. Will she go towards the path of light represented by Batman, or will she succumb to a life of crime? And meanwhile, the city is engulfed in terror. A mysterious new figure known as the Riddler has embarked on a killing spree of seemingly all of Gotham's institutional leaders. Is Bruce Wayne next? Central to the plot is some kind of philanthropic enterprise that Thomas Wayne uh, has set up before his death. I think it's called, you know, the Renewal Project or something like that, which upon his death has become a sort of slush fund. Thomas Wayne hoped to use it to bypass, you know, all the all the bureaucracy and red tape associated with, you know, Gotham's corrupt uh, city government. But in his absence, the depraved elements of the city have used the fact that there's no democratic oversight or, or accountability uh, over this these billions of dollars. They've used it to, you know, fund their depredations. We should say, by the way, that this is going to be a spoiler-filled discussion. So if you haven't seen it and you want to uh, pause it, go to your local multiplex, watch the movie, and then come back. But so throughout the film, the Riddler targets various officials, including, you know, one of them's a local, I think it's the local DA played by Peter Sarsgaard, various other people like that, who it turns out are all actually corrupt, which is one of the interesting things about this film is that it keeps showing you that all of the kind of central institutions of Gotham are incredibly corrupt, are directly tied to the mob. Like it turns out the like the police have done this huge uh, bust of some mob figure but then it turns out that the whole thing was just staged so that the real criminals can continue to wreak havoc. We see different signs of the kind of ensuing uh, disorder and chaos to come out of this. We see sort of like little mini Joker guys, like little raving gangs of Jokers, like just harassing innocent <laughs> commuters on the subway until, you know, the bat signal appears in the sky and Batman kind of, you know, intervenes. 
to stop them. Well, the Batman is also just out on the street harassing people, you know, beating up muggers as if he's like going to the gym and doing a few rounds. It is funny. I mean, it's set in the present day, but it is a very like 1980s law and order idea of what like fighting crime is. It's like it imagines crime less as a social phenomenon than as like a series of these like discrete bad incidents. And if you like intervene in enough of them, you create like a deterrent against crime. So like Batman has like one of his brooding monologues about the bat signal and like the meaning of the bat signal and how it creates fear in the city's criminal element that works as a deterrent. Except like it doesn't really because they're they're just, they're just still beating people up and like the chaos is just continuing. So that's what the Batman franchise has always been and This is the first Batman movie that has internalized the criticism towards the series that, oh, this is a rich guy who's beating up poor people. Why doesn't he go after the systemic problems? Why doesn't he battle the institutions? Because that's kind of Batman's arc through this movie. He starts just beating up muggers and he ends beating up muggers too. That's still part of his portfolio. Like that's, it's still important that he does that. But he also learns to fry bigger fish. The other thing I want to note about this sort of environment environment of chaos and disorder that seems to predominate in Gotham throughout the movie is we do also get signs that there's kind of organic popular protest uh, against the city and its institutions. And I think this is really important, especially when we uh, for when we talk about the kind of final act of the film. When the incumbent mayor who's running for re-election gets murdered, uh, outside of his funeral, we see all these people picketing with signs that, you know, say, you know, stop the corruption, no more lies, uh, stuff like that. And so in addition to all of the kind of chaos and disorder being fomented by the Riddler and organized crime and, you know, all of their various confederates, it does seem like the people of Gotham are not happy with how they're being governed and are taking out a lot of their anger, you know, rightly on the people that are supposed to represent them. It's funny, the corruption angle has always been part of the Batman series. In the first Tim Burton movie, you'll recall that there are like cops on the force who are in the payroll of the Jack Palance mobster character, you know, later succeeded by Jack Nicholson. Batman Begins also has a strong angle of like, Commissioner Gordon's the good cop in a corrupt police force. But since Nolan, the Batman movies have become much more consciously political. I get I get the sense that the Tim Burton ones are political. Like they're obviously political. They they are they're obviously like if they're anything, they're fascist. But <laughs> it, it, it's sort of an ambient fascism. They're sort of grabbing. Well, uh, uh, what's the sort of thing that would be in a story like this? Uh, cor- corrupt police officials, right? That would be it. It's not part of any real attempt to like prod the zeitgeist or speak to the now. It's just a sort of free floating signifier that movies like that have used forever. And so that movie will use them. Whereas this one is like capital P political. It's talking about the now. Yeah. And I guess we should, uh, we, sh- we could talk a little bit more about the Riddler and his motivations here, because what's so funny about the Riddler is that as you learn more about him, you realize that his whole thing is like calling out corruption among like, among Gotham's institutions. He's constantly uh, working to expose powerful figures in Gotham who the film directly informs us, you know, are indeed involved in all of these, you know, corrupt dealings and things like that. The absolute funniest and most incredible scene in the movie, right? So the the Riddler keeps kidnapping people. He keeps doing these like weird videos. He keeps doing big performance art assassinations on corrupt city officials. Yeah, and for some reason, you know, he the news media keeps just like playing the Riddler's little manifestos just like out in full. But the absolute funniest scene in the movie is when uh, Batman is when the Batman and the cops are investigating the Riddler's hideout or something. 
And uh, one of the cops like opens up his social media account and like turns to them and says, oh, he's got over 500 followers, real fringe types. And then the Riddler proceeds in this uh, in this video to address members of his like fringe subreddit or whatever, where he does posts about how Gotham is corrupt and how we, you know, we need to rise up to expose the lies. And he talks about specifically about like what a wonderful community that they've built on here and how this has really sustained him, uh, you know, over over the past few months. And we learn that the Riddler essentially calls for something like the storm. Like the Riddler is kind of like their cue. It's very funny. Someone someone uh, remarked on this online, but it's really funny the way that this line about him having more than 500 followers is delivered. He has more than 500 followers. Yeah, the cop delivers it with such conviction as if that's like a lot of followers to have. And what I like about that is I feel like the film's implicit message is that like, folks, the most dangerous thing in the world is posts. Misinformation posts are the most dangerous thing in the world. And if a guy like this has even one follower, it's one follower too many. So I'm curious how you think the Riddler is encoded because initially I thought of him sort of mostly as just, yeah, he's like a MAGA guy or like he's QAnon. But in talking with my girlfriend who saw the film with me afterwards, I think we teased out a little more that he's sort of more generally encoded. Like he has these lines where he's complaining about the rich and powerful and stuff like that. And I feel like he's encoded not simply as sort of, you know, MAGA or QAnon, but as sort of small p populism as a certain type of uh, reactionary centrist liberalism has construed it since 2016. Like, you know, he is a sort of cipher into which, you know, all critiques or challenges of the liberal democratic order are kind of (laughs) collapsed. And it's incredible because like the Riddler isn't actually telling lies, really. Like he, he it's not a conspiracy theory. Like the people he's targeting are corrupt uh, city officials who are working with the mob and his corruption is inflicting ruin and chaos on the city and its residents. Okay, I completely agree with you. And I think various characters in the movie are used very symbolically. So yes, he is populism, but he's a certain kind of populism. He's angry white man populism. So that's both Bernie bros, but it's also Reddit incel people and it's mega people and it's QAnon people. You know, th- there are scenes where it's like he's like Elliot Roger, basically. You know, he's basement dwelling, weird white people. And he posts, which is so important. This is a movie about how we need mods. First and foremost, the vanguards of democracy are internet mods. So that's what he is. Yes, he is He is Bernie and Trump and all those people. <laughs> but then there are two other characters who I think are very important. And I think it is important that they are both black women. Now, I got torn apart on Twitter for suggesting this, but sorry, folks, I'm right. It's true. I don't think the movie did this consciously, but the evidence is on the screen. You've got the progressive mayoral candidate. Bella Real is the character's name. She's played by Jamie Lawson. And she is AOC. She's Cori Bush. She's Ilan Omar. And she's running against this incumbent mayor who is representative of a crumbling old liberal order. In an early scene, we see the two of them on a debate stage together. And he's talking about that fund that Thomas Wayne pioneered and how great it is. And what are you saying? Are you saying we should get rid of that? And she's saying it's been ineffective. Crime has skyrocketed. You know, that guy, uh, he's talking about Obamacare. He's talking about welfare as we know it. You know, he's talking about means-tested shit that doesn't work. (laughs) And because she's a young black woman, she she is those people, and she's from outside the normal political order. And she talks about real change. Then there's our old friend Catwoman, played by Zoe Kravitz, and she represents uh, something 
sort of similar to, but distinct from what the Riddler represents. The Riddler and his hordes are like angry young white men who have been left behind by capitalism. She represents everyone else who has been left behind by capitalism. She's struggling. She's trying to survive on the streets of Gotham. She also thinks that the system is fundamentally corrupt. She, she doesn't post you know, she's not a Bernie bro, but she's disengaged. She knows in her bones that the system doesn't favor her and that it can't be salvaged. So those are the extremes. But what if there was a third way? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Batman. I have a special message for you from the President of the United States. I salute the boys and girls who are buying United States savings stamps and bonds through the Treasury School Savings Program. They're learning the lessons of practical citizenship and of wise money management. And they're giving important support to the cause of freedom and the men who fight for us in Vietnam. So I have a, I have a slightly different interpretation of the mayoral character because for me, she's just, as a mayoral candidate, she's much more just encoded as like generic lib. And to me, I read the end of the film where, you know, she's elected and she gives the big speech, not as being about the triumph of some kind of, you know, progressive mayoral candidacy, but about just being a sort of idealized rendering of what like some people thought the beginning of the Biden era was going to be. Just like the early Biden era, but without Joe Biden. Because wh what do we learn about her politics in the film. We learn uh, at the funeral for the, the incumbent mayor who's who's murdered in the first scene of the film, she tries to strike up a conversation with Bruce Wayne and she's saying, look, your father was really involved in billionaire philanthropy and I want you to be involved again. Like when I'm when I'm the mayor, you're going to be busy doing, uh, doing the kind of billionaire philanthropic work again. So you think she's Kamala Harris because she says that, because she thinks that the billionaire class can still do good. Yeah, and what does she say at the end of the film? She's talking about how uh, we have to restore people's faith and institutions not we have to fix the institutions we have to make people trust the institutions again and we also have to restore faith in elected officials and i think the arc of the film lends something to my interpretation because as we've already alluded to several times so much of this film is you know it's the riddler is not telling a conspiracy theory gotham is incredibly corrupt and yet the film insists again and again that there's nothing wrong with gotham that can't be fixed by what's right with gotham like yeah the cops may have been taken over by organized crime. Yeah, the entire city, uh, when it functioned better, seems to have depended on like the whims of a single billionaire. Yeah, the incumbent mayor sucked. Yeah, there are just like hordes of raving bands of like hooligans beating up commuters and stuff. But hey, it's a new dawn. We got like, you know, a, another generic politician who's like saying like fun, nice stuff about how we gotta, we gotta, we gotta stop the hate and get, get, you know, start to trust one another again. It's very much, it strikes me as a sort of liberal message of like spiritual renewal of the kind that I really associate with the Biden era and with the sort of like Biden-Harris presidential ticket. Like this is what they were gonna do. And this was the sort of like reactionary centrist pro Project all along throughout the Trump presidency, this kind of nostalgic yearning for just, you know, some kind of mostly fictionalized era where, you know, the elites from both parties got along and there weren't rebellions on the left and the right. You didn't really have anti-establishment politics in any kind of way, because don't forget, it's the anti-establishment politics on the left and the right that's making people not trust institutions, right? It's not all the obvious corruption and hideousness of institutions. It's not the fact that institutions don't seem to represent people or work for them at all. It's it's the fact that there are now people who, who point this out, that there are demagogues. And so because this film was supposed to come out in June 2021, that's how I kind of read it as a sort of like, maybe not explicit, but sort of somewhat, you know, unconscious statement, a sort of generalized and abridged version of like all those very uh, 
uh, Trump era sort of liberal impulses. That's what it seems to me. And tying it all together is the Riddler, who I think is a little more, you know, he's a little more encoded as like a right wing figure than a left wing figure. But I do think he is, he's supposed to represent populism in general. Okay, I absolutely agree with you that that is what the movie thinks about society. That is the thesis of the movie. I still disagree with you on your interpretation of the Bella Real mayoral candidate. And I think it's important to remember that this movie is made by Hollywood libs who are not very smart. Uh, That's me saying that and who don't understand the left. So take that scene where she confronts Bruce Wayne at the funeral and says, your father did so much for the city. Hey, how come you're not doing too much for the city? A more radical politician would say there are no good billionaires. Yes. But the people who made this movie look at AOC, they look at Cori Bush, uh, they look at all these people and they say, these people are really annoying and they nag a lot. And they're constantly on billionaires cases. That's what that scene is. Now, the key scene with that character comes late in the film. It's election night. There's a huge siege on all of Gotham City. The Riddler is literally destroying all of Gotham City, causing it to flood. Well, so the, the Riddler destroys the sea walls in Gotham, causing everything to flood. And I think that it's important to note that this is the first time the Riddler inflicts violence in like a sort of generalized and indiscriminate way. Because before that, he's just targeting like corrupt city officials. So this is happening. The Riddler's 4chan army, his January 6th army is everywhere. The city is in utter chaos, but at Madison Square Garden, I mean Gotham Square Garden, that's what it's called, where the election night acceptance speech is being held. You know, Commissioner Gordon and the cops come and they say, excuse me, Madam Mayor-elect, we have to get you out of here. The city's under siege. It's flooding. There's chaos. And she says something like, "Uh, no, uh, this is politics as usual. I have to get out there and talk to people. This is an example of the sort of corruption that people are tired of. They want to hear me talk. She goes out and like any normal person under this situation would say, uh, yeah, I should get out of here. Like there are going to be people in the rafters who are going to kill me, but not this straw progressive who is so insulated from reality, who is so tied to impractical, unrealistic political conviction that she goes out there in the line of fire when the whole city is under siege with no protection and just thinks, yeah, she's she's just gonna solve everything with the power of her rhetoric. And of course she gets shot instantly. Now the last scene that we see her in, that's the end of her arc. That's when she becomes a good politician, according to the movie. That's her the day after saying we are going to reestablish trust in our institutions because our institutions are strong. She's learned a lesson because the police have saved her from these Riddler 4chan goons. Well, and and the Batman has saved her. Yes, who I guess is uh, is an example of uh, an institution. I, no, I no, no. He, I mean, he he absolutely is because the inciting incident for everything in this film is the death of Thomas Wayne. Gotham. Gotham has lost its Michael Bloomberg and without its Michael Bloomberg (laughs) it has fallen into total disarray and so much of the arc for the Batman character as well is that he has to learn to accept his responsibilities and assume his responsibilities as the scion of Thomas Wayne aka Michael Bloomberg because he's been neglecting them right there's an early scene where Alfred's trying to get him to look over the finances or whatever and and he's just like I'm not interested I want to sit here and listen to Kurt Cobain and you know like brood about how how dark everything is and so a big part of like batman's arc in the film is him learning to reassume these responsibilities and also not to be drawn into the orbit of the riddler who when you know he goes to see him in that scene near the end at the arkham asylum 
tries to kind of convince him the Riddler's plan all along has been to kind of loop Batman in on the evil. But of course, Batman ends up turning towards the light, which is becoming a more sort of ordered good character, you know, like one who works alongside the police. This is something the film stresses in its final scene because uh, Selina, played by Zoe Kravitz, uh, she decides, well, Gotham's really beyond the pale. You know, you're never going to fix it. This is going to kill you. You know, I'm, I'm getting out of here. You should come with me and have adventures. But Batman decides to stay and uh, aid in recovery efforts and undoubtedly lay the groundwork for at least two or three or possibly five more movies in this uh, in this <laughs> franchise. In the final scene of the film, they drive off on their motorcycles together. They get to a fork in the road. They look at each other and he turns and he drives away from her because he has another mistress and her name is Justice. That's powerful visual storytelling. The old <laughs> fork in the road symbol. Can, can we talk about the final scene where the Riddler is in the Arkham Asylum? And he meets a character uh, who might be familiar to some of you listening at home. Okay, a problem that I have with the Batman movies at this point is I've seen all the scenes already. <laughs> like that scene you just described where Catwoman's about to leave town. And like that was in The Dark Knight Rises. I've seen like they've done every version of all these scenes already. And this last scene is no exception where you find out that uh, we might be seeing an old friend in the sequel. You hear a cackling laugh, and you're supposed to be so excited that, yes, uh, the clown prince of crime himself, the Joker, might might come back. We're going to have our, like, fifth Joker in ten years. You know, they've all been such a success. Everyone loved the Jared Leto Joker, who was the most hyped of all. I don't know how I'm supposed to keep getting excited that we're going to see the Joker in the next movie. This has to end at some point. Well, especially since there's now been, you know, they, they gave Joker his own film, and Joaquin Phoenix delivered the definitive performance. I mean, the worst thing you can say about that film is that it's it's actually too good to be set in like the DC universe. It, it's actually just like it actually would just work as like a good film about mental illness. By the way, I'm glad you brought that movie up because that movie and this one are the first two movies in the Batman franchise that complicate the Thomas Wayne character. Do you remember as recently as Batman Begins, in the flashbacks with Thomas Wayne, he's presented as this uh, saintly figure. He's so good in Batman Begins that he's creating an affordable transit system, this monorail that we never see in any of the later movies, this monorail that poor people can use. He has this great sense of noblesse oblige, but we're in a different time now. And if things keep going the way they're going, we may never get a wholly uncomplicated Thomas Wayne again, because uh, the, the movies now have to reckon to some degree with the fact that Batman, Bruce Wayne, is a child of privilege, and he comes from a family of oligarchs. So in in Joker, Thomas Wayne is a villain like he represents the political order that has left Joaquin Phoenix behind whereas in this one you find out that uh he may have been involved in the corruption of the city himself he may have ordered a mob hit against a journalist who is digging into his family and yet because the film ultimately wants to reify and uphold the order of Gotham we learn that it's actually not okay to be mad at the Wayne family because we learn that the Riddler has class envy, right? He gives <laughs> he gives a, a spiel to the Batman who visits him in the Arkham Asylum about how like, oh, everyone says you're an orphan. 
but I, I'm a real orphan. Like, I had to sleep in a room with, like, 20 other kids, and, like, every winter, one of them would die. And I'm a victim of this slush fund that your father set up. Right, but in spite of all that, the film wants to argue to us that the resolution to everything is still found in the reanimated corpse of Thomas Wayneism. My least favorite scene of the movie, the scene I respect the least, <laughs> comes after the scene where Bruce Wayne confronts Carmine Falcone, the John Turturro mob boss character, and says, is this true? Did my father order you to murder that journalist? And Carmine Falcone says, hey, bada bing, maybe he did. I don't know. I bet you thought your father was a really good man, but uh, turns out he can be not such a good man if pushed into a corner. Hey. And then the next scene, Bruce Wayne goes to visit Alfred the butler, who's in the hospital, and he says, why did you lie to me about this? Why didn't you tell me that my father did this? And then this is the scene where Alfred the butler lets Thomas Wayne and the audience off the hook. He says something like, listen, that that's not what happened. Your father didn't want to save his political career. He wanted to save your mother and you. And he only went to Carmine Falcone uh, once and he didn't tell him to kill anyone. He was horrified. In fact, he was going to confess to the police and that's why he got killed that night. So he's actually a really good man. I guess the movie leaves it sort of ambiguous, but I just hated that scene that it had to exist. Can't can't Thomas Wayne, a character nobody likes, a character that nobody has any stake in, nobody cares about. Character who you barely see, you only see him in flashbacks, you're not invested in him at all, except through Batman. Like, can't he be bad? <laughs> Do you remember the scene in Batman Begins where he's going through the Batcave and Alfred says, uh, your great-great-grandfather was involved in the Underground Railroad, and that's what this <laughs> cave was used for. So that was a scene that established that the Waynes are uh, such old money that they've been involved in every good throughout American history. And to some degree, that still exists, because now this movie has to basically say, okay, the times are such that we have to regard Thomas Wayne with suspicion, but not too much suspicion. He's still basically one of the good guys. Well, right. And the alternatives to him are all equally bad. And are you really going to hate so much a guy who loves his wife and son? Come on. <laughs> the Riddler doesn't even have a wife and son. But so, so much of the movie is about how, yes, institutions may be corrupt. They may be extremely corrupt. They may be extremely dysfunctional. Every single person seemingly in the institution might be corrupt, <laughs> except for one cop who's good. And then at the end, you find out there are you know 20 of the city's 1000 policemen are also good right so it's saying that as corrupt and debased as all of this is you're not allowed to lose any faith in it right <laughs> we the film shows us both the psychotic riddler's response to this to everything that's going on but then it also shows us just like ordinary citizens of gotham protesting and it's also finger wagging at them it's like you can't afford to withdraw and decide that the whole system isn't working for you we need you to get invested there's gonna be a new exciting mare. She's going to be on TV. She's young. She's hip. Meanwhile, Thomas Wayne's son is, you know, going to be back to do uh, philanthropy while, while, you know, kicking a little bit of ass on the side and doing the, doing the stuff that you can't trust the politicians to do. I mean, I feel like one of the deep subtexts of the film is a very liberal idea that politics is such an inherently messy enterprise and is so about compromise, not just in a political sense, but also in a kind of moral and ethical sense as well, that you're not really allowed to expect very much from it. Like, as you say, the film amends the Thomas Wayne mythos and the sort of Gotham ethos a fair bit. And it tries to create space for the idea that, you know, Thomas Wayne in particular might not have been a, a totally saintly figure. And also that Gotham's institutions are bad and that they're corrupt. 
Nevertheless, its ultimate message at the end is like, hey, well, you just got to kind of stick with it. And we got to root out all those bad apples who seem to comprise the entire barrel. Root out a few bad apples, you know, try to get a few bipartisan bills passed in Congress, whatever. You know, one way or another, folks, we're going to build back better. <laughs> and if it looks like nothing in your life is going to get better. Uh, yeah, don't worry. There's there's a plan. Uh, we, we promise. Real change. And by the way, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So buckle up. <laughs> Probably the root of the problem that I have with this movie is the Batman franchise has been trending in the direction of uh, what I'll call, for want of a better word, realism. And I think that this has been a catastrophic mistake. Batman, like so many superheroes, was invented by a bunch of hacks to entertain children in the 30s. And you want and you want Batman to get back to his roots. I would say it would make more sense in that context. Each more realistic Batman movie has actually gotten steadily more absurd. Uh, each one of these movies, it's like, okay, but but what if this was real? What if we took it really seriously? You get scenes like early in this movie where Batman's at a crime scene. Very solemnly lit, very Fincher-esque, very downbeat music playing, blood everywhere, very violent. You got a man dressed as a bat, and he's talking to the police commissioner. And what do you do to make this tableau, this absurd tableau realistic? You have a guy run in and say, what is he doing here? He's a vigilante. And the guy is right. It's absurd. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's insane that he's there. And I, I don't feel like this movie ever fully gets around that. The more and more seriously they take it, every scene where it's like Batman's at police headquarters. It's just a guy, a guy in a weird bat suit walking around. There's a scene in this movie where Batman's been detained and he is surrounded by cops in an interrogation room. And Gordon, who is the one cop in the room who is on Batman's side and who for some reason has had a bat signal installed. He says, all right, guys, get out. I'm just going to reason with Batman for a little bit. And they all say, well, Gordon, you're putting your reputation on the line, but okay, you will. And then they, they concoct a scheme where like Batman pretends to punch him out and then he runs through the hallway to get out. That scene is so funny. All of these hostile cops looking at the commissioner talking to a guy in a bat suit and then the guy in the bat suit flees. That's funnier than anything in any episode of the Adam West show. 